All right, grab your Bible and open to the book of Jonah. We're starting a new series today. And so you need to be in Jonah chapter one. We're taking a break from first Corinthians um, because I don't have a long attention span. So we're already 12 weeks in and, you know, like, let's do something different for a little bit. We'll do four weeks in Jonah. We'll spend the month of December on a Christmas series. And then coming in January, we'll come back and finish first Corinthians all the way up to Easter where we'll land in 1 Corinthians 15 and talk about the resurrection. Um, so this would be great. So right now, we'll start this series in the book of Jonah. So when Clarissa and I were first married, um, I was working at a small church in the suburbs of Chicago. I was sort of their interim youth pastor. I, I was uh, very young, and I was trying to figure out how to be a pastor, and I was trying to figure out how to be married. We didn't have any kids yet, and uh, we had uh, relocated into this. We rented a small house in, in the neighborhood where this ch- the church was. And one night, as I was in seminary and trying to be a youth pastor and trying to figure out how to be married, one night we were sitting in our living room, and we were just, I don't know, hanging out. I was probably... Uh, pretending that I was studying or something. And, uh, but we're just enjoying the quiet of our home, uh, which, you know, 22 years later, we still haven't figured out how to enjoy the quiet of our home. There's always something going on, but we were just enjoying the quiet of our home. And all of a sudden I I heard a sound and, and it was odd. And then I saw some flashing lights in my window. And so I looked outside the window and I saw toilet paper hanging from all of our trees I saw a police car in front with his lights flashing, and I saw teenagers running every which way, sprinting for their lives, right? And then, so I turn around, I walk, and I go to the back door to see what's going on. I walk to the kitchen, and there is a teenage boy standing in our kitchen, scared the tar out of me. Like, what is going on? Well, come to find out, some of our students uh, at that church decided it would be a great idea to, uh, that Friday night, to get together and late at night TP our house. And so they went and bought a bunch of toilet paper and they were in our front yard quietly throwing toilet paper all around when suddenly a police officer pulled up and turned his lights on and they were in a dead panic, these kids. They were running every which way for their lives. One kid ran down the street a mile and a half all the way home. <laughs> they were hiding in the bushes, they were trying to figure out what to do. And then this one kid <laughs> realized as he was standing by my back door that he had two choices. He either had to walk forward directly and greet the police officer, or he could come in my back door and face me. And apparently I'm less intimidating, right? So he just decided to come into my house. Now, in, in many sense, this kid was caught between a rock and a hard place, right? He was caught in a place where he thought, do I face the police or do I face Pastor Dave? And again, I, I win in that case. But sometimes you and I get this idea of being caught between a rock and a hard place. We have figured out that there are times in life where we don't know which way to go. It seems like if we go one way, we don't like that choice. If we go the other way, we don't like that choice. And we spend our time trying to figure out what is option C. I don't like A or B. I'd like to find an option C. And so oftentimes we try to run. Today, we're going to, I want to introduce you to a man who was put in a rock and a hard place, Jonah, and he ran. Now, if you're anybody who has ever heard anything about the Bible, you have heard about the story of Jonah, right? You have heard about this guy that gets swallowed by a big fish. You have 
been told stories. You've seen the Disney cartoon Pinocchio and and their take on the whole Jonah experience. And you've heard of Jonah being in a fish. And that may be all you know about Jonah. But today I want you to know that Jonah has very little to do with the fish. Jonah has so much more to do with responding to God when God doesn't do what you think he should. How do you respond to God when you think he didn't do what you wanted him to do? When you don't think he did what he should have done, and we have all been there, where we have looked at God and said, God, I disagree. I don't like the options in front of me, God. How do we respond to God when we don't when he doesn't do what we think he should. We're going to ask this question over the next four weeks. There are four chapters to Jonah. It breaks out nicely for four separate sermons. And we see four responses of Jonah when he didn't think God did what he thought God should do. Jonah did these four things. He ran, he surrendered, he obeyed, and he pouted. And that could form an outline for this book. Today, we're going to look at how Jonah ran from God. Next week, we'll see he surrendered. The third week, we'll see he obeyed. And the fourth week, we'll see he pouted. Today, I want to know how you respond when God has you between a rock and a hard place. How do you respond? If you're like Jonah, you have looked for option C. You have run. You have tried to do anything other than the two options that you don't like that God has put in front of you. When God puts you between a rock and a hard place, do you squirm out of it? Sometimes there is no option C, as we'll find with Jonah. Sometimes the pressure we feel has been designed by God because he wants to break down our preconceived notions of what he is doing, not only in our lives, but in his kingdom work around the world. How do you respond when God has you between a rock and a hard place? Today, I want to implore you, don't run. There's no option C. When you find yourself between a rock and a hard place, stand firm amidst the pressure and either choose the rock or the hard place. Let's jump into Jonah chapter one here. I just want to work you through straight through this chapter and see how Jonah responded when God had him between a rock and a hard place. And right away we see in verse one of chapter one of the book of Jonah, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. What do we know about Jonah? Well, Jonah was a prophet from the northern tribe of Israel. Uh, Earlier in Israel's history, the country had essentially had a civil war and divided into the north and the south. There was a kingdom in the north and there's a kingdom in the south. Jonah was a prophet, one who spoke truth to the king of the north, to the people of the north. That was his job. Jonah, prophets didn't necessarily, although they did sometimes predict the future, but a prophet's primary job in the Old Testament was to speak truth. Truth that God wanted people to hear. And God usually spoke tough things that people didn't want to hear. We see Jeremiah. They were so mad at Jeremiah, they lowered him into a pit and he sunk into the clay. They banned him. They threw him in jail. Uh, Jeremiah at one point said, I'm so tired of speaking God's truth. Just let me keep my mouth closed. And uh, I, I quote this verse a lot. Jeremiah says, 
Even if I say I will not speak anymore in his name, his word is like a fire that burns in my heart. I grow weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. Prophets had a hard job. They were used to telling people things that they didn't want to hear. Jonah is in this account. He's not going to want to do what God wants him to do. The the text continues, verse 2. So the word comes to Jonah, and and God says to him, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. So Nineveh was the capital of a nation or an empire called Assyria. Assyria was the world power on the stage at Jonah's time. They were, Assyria was growing in influence. Eventually, Assyria would attack and decimate the northern kingdom of Israel. They would conquer Israel and spread the Israelites out throughout the world. And we have sort of this lost kingdom of Israel. But I want you to look at this map here and you you can see a little bit about context for what's happening in Jonah. Ben throw that map up here. Uh, about the number 1 on the map, we'll see kind of where Jonah lived in Israel and worked in Israel. Um, we can see him in the north there and you could see the yellow line shows us where he should have gone to go to Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. That's what God asked him to do. Take this journey. Go over here. Okay, so first of all, wait a minute. Jonah should have been talking to Israelites. Why would God send Jonah to Gentiles, to non-Jewish people? Because as far as Jonah knew, God didn't even care about anyone else than God's chosen people. At the same time, we see that Assyria, you can kind of see the words fall off the map for Assyria, was growing in scope and influence. Uh, every king, every ruler that ruled the Assyrians up to this time seemed to grow the kingdom. They would conquer more territory. They would subject their enemies to some pretty terrible things. Uh, and they were knocking on the door of Israel. The, the scope of Assyria had grown all the way to the door of the northern kingdom of Israel. Assyria was hated by the Israelites. You need to understand some things about Assyria and, and to understand what's happening in Jonah. And these things that I'm going to tell you about Assyria are hard to hear. Okay? This is, uh, this is rated R kind of brutality and grotesqueness. The Assyrians, as a people, boasted of their cruelty to capture peoples following the siege of a town. They boasted of it. They would tell and proclaim their greatness by treating the people they conquered with absolute brutality and cruelty. Um, and they just didn't limit their cruelty to the soldiers they conquered. They, they, would, they would kill or torture anybody they conquered as a sign of their greatness. They would brag of live dismemberment. If you read ancient documents from Assyria, they often would just take captives alive and they would begin to dismember them one limb at a time then they would leave one hand in place so that they could shake the hand before the person died they bragged of this the assyrians would often talk about a parade of heads as they cut off their enemies heads they would stick them on poles and force their family members to carry the head of their loved one on a parade through the city the assyrians stretched people 
They would put them on ropes and they would stretch people till they died. Uh, This was a way of loosening the skin of the person. So once they died or while they were still alive, they could skin them alive. They would hang their skin on the walls of their city. They pulled out the tongues of living people. They burned young people alive. And they commissioned art to be made. Piles of heads, hands of feet, rows of heads on shish kebab style. They would commission this art to talk about their brutality. Look at this picture that someone created a pencil drawing of this carving here. And uh, this was a carving that was found in Assyria. And you can see here, they're bragging of stretching these people out by ropes. You can see the one guy in the middle is holding a head upside down. The Assyrians loved to boast of their brutality and torture of other people. It was graphic. I'm going to read you the writings of a ruler of Assyria. Asher Nasirapal II. This is really graphic. Here's what he says about his rule. He said, one, I flayed the skins from as many nobles as had rebelled against me, and I draped their skins over the piles of corpses. I cut off the heads of their fighters and built with them a tower before the city, a tower of heads. I burned their adolescent boys and girls. I cut off arms and hands. I cut off their noses and ears and extremities. I gorged out the eyes of many of the troops. I made one pile of the living and one of removed heads. And I hung their heads on trees around the city. Can you imagine driving through Waukee and seeing heads hanging from trees? The Assyrians were a horrible, brutal, wicked people. They were terrible you and I kind of wonder, we hear the story of, hey, God said, so we know God said, Jonah, go, go tell these people, uh, go preach to these people so that they'll repent and have forgiveness. And we're like, why didn't he just go? I mean, what's the big deal? This is the deal. Jonah hated the wicked Assyrians and the Israelites hated them more. They were rapidly expanding their empire, threatening Israel. Already, probably the Israelites had to pay some kind of taxation to the Assyrians. They hated them. So Jonah had options. Jonah was stuck between a rock and a hard place. On one side, he could obey God. And if he obeyed God, here's the rock and the hard place. If he obeyed God, he risked going to these brutal people and having them tie him up with ropes and skin him alive, right? Bad option one. The other option is he could go to the people. What if they actually repent? Now he's got to come home to the Israelites who say, we didn't want God's compassion on them. What are you doing, Jonah? We want them to die and suffer God's judgment horribly. It's between a rock and a hard place. If he goes and they don't repent, they're going to kill him and torture him. If he goes and they do repent, he's going to come back home to scorn and ridicule and hatred. Jonah looked at where he was between a rock and a hard place. And he said, I don't like my options. Imagine this. Um, In in the last 10, 15 years, we've seen lots of brutal images coming out of uh, the other side of the world where Christians are taken by extremists, by, by Muslim extremists. By where they've got the video camera rolling and having these Christians on the beach and one by one, they're beheaded. Imagine the kind of, as a Christian, 
the kind of hatred and disdain we have to see our brothers and Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ across the globe brutally murdered like this. It should raise in you a it should raise in you a problem. It should raise in you a level of discomfort and a level of sadness to see a brothers and Christ and sisters in Christ treated this way. And imagine now, God says to you, go to those captors. Go to those terrible, horrible people who would behead Christians and preach God's message of repentance to them. In all likelihood, if you would go, let's say, to the, the number one terrorist on the most wanted list and preach the message of Christ, you know going there that most likely they're going to behead you. Or capture you and try to hold you for... Something terrible is going to happen. And if you did go and they did... Would you really want them to just experience God's compassion? I mean, wouldn't you kind of want them to suffer a little bit for the horrible things they've done? That is where Jonah found himself. He didn't like either choice. He didn't like the choice of telling these terrible people about God's grace. He didn't like the idea of going home if they did accept it. And having to face his fellow countrymen. He didn't like either option, so he looked for option C. He ran. He decided to ignore God and choose his own path. Look at verse 3. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. Uh, By the way, if you skipped over to chapter 4, we're going to find out why Jonah ran in verse 2. He says, uh, I knew... (laughs) Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I so quickly flew to Tarshish. I knew you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Jonah did not want the Assyrians to repent. He's in this horrible place, and so he decides to choose option C, and he runs. He runs, and he goes down to Joppa to get on the boat, and go the completely wrong direction. Let me throw up another map here for you, Ben. Throw this up here. Here's a, a picture of the entire Mediterranean area. You can see, if you look straight in the middle, there's the boot of uh, Italy, Greece to the right, Turkey farther right, just to get your bearings, Egypt's down to the bottom right. And where it says Joppa on the map, that's, that's essentially in Israel. Jonah is supposed to go to the right up to Nineveh. Jonah goes the opposite way. He gets on a boat to go to Tarshish, which was in modern-day Spain, for an, a, uh, for an ancient person, this was the extent of the known world. This was the edge of the earth. Jonah is going as far away as he can possibly get from doing what God asked him to do. God says, go right, he goes left, and he go, he's headed to the very end of the earth to get away from choice A, or B. He's trying to make choice C. Now, Tarshish was this port in Spain, and essentially he said, God, I see the choices that you put before me. I see them. I don't like them. Um, So I quit. And getting on this boat to go to Tarshish, Jonah quit. He's like, ah, here's my job, my calling. I'm a prophet of God. I quit. I don't want anything to do with option A or option B. I quit. Which brings the question, can you call, can you quit on the calling of the Lord? Jonah tried to quit. Can you and I quit on the calling of the Lord? People quit all the time on God. 
They say, hey, God told me to do X, Y, or Z. And after two months, I've talked to a lot of people who's like, God told me I'm supposed to do this. And after like two months, it's hard and, and people quit. We sort of just conveniently forget about the calling, right? There's this beauty to God's sovereignty here. He takes option C, Jonah's quitting, Jonah's running away, and God is going to use that to transform Jonah and change the lives of the people he encounters along the way. Jonah's gift, God's gift to Jonah is that God doesn't let him quit. He doesn't let him quit. God is going to use Jonah anyway. Have you ever said no to God? Have you ever said, God, you said, I don't care what it is. I will never do, (laughs) you name the thing. Have you ever said that? I've said I'll never do some things. It's a dangerous thing to say to God. I said, I'll never go to the Middle East. I went to the Middle East. I said, I will never have more kids after kid number four. I did. I said that. In fact, my wife one day came to me and said, I think we should have more kids. And I said, no, I'm not doing that. She said, okay. She said the most dangerous thing to me. I'm going to pray that God will either change my heart or yours. Oh man, that is a horrible prayer. Oh, here I'm sitting with six kids now. All right. <laughs> uh, I said, I'm not interested in working with adults way back when I was in seminary. You adults are boring. Kids are where it's at. I want to work with students. Here I am. God calls me up to plant this church in Waukee. I've said, I will never drink coffee. <laughs> I've said that. I said, Man, I'm an addict now. All right. Have you ever said to God, I'll never do something? That is a dangerous thing to say. Can you quit on God? God's going to even use your quitting to do his kingdom work and his glory. This is the beauty of a wonderful, sovereign, grace-filled, merciful God. And he's going to do this with Jonah. God's sovereign hand. He has a loving way of steering us by changing our hearts. We're only in three verses, but let's keep going. Verse 4. Then the Lord, so, okay, so verse three, Jonah ran away from the Lord. He headed to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa and where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid. Each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. Storms on the Mediterranean Sea could come up quickly and be very dangerous. Here we are introduced to some of the very kinds of people, these sailors, from whom Jonah is running. Now, these aren't Ninevites. These are just plain old ordinary pagans, right? That didn't believe in God. That had their assortment of gods they worshipped. But these are the very kinds of people Jonah is not interested in ministering to. He's not interested. God called me to be a prophet to Israel. Why am I interacting with all these non-Jewish people? I don't get it. These are pagans. Certainly not worshipers of God. And really, Jonah, he's like, I quit. Hey, I've already quit. I'm not interested in doing anything that the Lord has for me. And so we see Jonah really had came to the point where he didn't care anymore. Maybe you've been a place in life, kind of a dark place, where you don't care anymore. You can relate to Jonah in this. Look at the second half of verse 5. Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. 
A storm is raging around him and Jonah no longer cares. You see, Jonah doesn't care really about anyone but himself. I think Jonah had a pretty good idea when the storm came up of what was going on. He knew that God wasn't going to let him quit and he didn't and God wasn't going to let him run away. And most certainly Jonah knew that God was everywhere. But he thought that if he abandoned his job, God would just leave him alone. Uh, It's interesting to to note here. James uh, Bruckner says this. He's a commentary uh, commentator in the minor prophets he says jonah is not fleeing the god of heaven he knows that's impossible he's running away from god's specific call on his life to preach to his enemies jonah's between a rock and a hard place and he's chosen option c run away from his job how do you respond when god's put you in a rock and a hard place god wants jonah to preach to the Ninevites, the Assyrians, this wicked, horrible people. Which begs the question, is it right for God to save the wicked? It doesn't really seem just, does it? For God to save the wicked? It doesn't really seem right and just. How is this fair? These were evil people. Jonah is essentially saying, God, you got it wrong. Just leave me alone and let me die. How do you respond when you think God got it wrong? I mean, which one of us hasn't been there? Which one of us hasn't had to endure some pain in our life? Haven't we all thought, you know, God, (laughs) I don't think you got this right. The wicked seem to prosper. God, what are you doing? I mean, think just just about the issue uh, with Beza threads that we've been talking about, about human sex trafficking and human enslavement of others. God, what are you doing? Why does this still exist? Child abusers run unchecked. And then there's personal things. You're suffering through something difficult. Maybe someone you love passed away. Maybe your relationship, your marriage, your family relationships are on the rocks. Maybe you've worked hard to raise your child and now he's abandoned the ways of God. And you're just going, God, I think you got it wrong. How do you respond? Jonah quit. He, he abandoned God's task and now he just wants God to leave him alone and he's going to sleep through it all. And if he dies, he dies. Problem is God's not willing to let him go. He wakes up to the stupid ship's captain shaking him. Look at the text. It, the, the words get so graphic now, like so vivid. The, the captain went to him and you can just imagine him shaking Jonah. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up, call on your God. Maybe he'll take notice of him and we will not perish. Why are you sleeping at a time like this? And he doesn't realize that Jonah quit caring. God's not going to let Jonah quit. Not going to let him. Jonah's going to keep his mouth shut, though. He wakes up. He's not going to reveal anything. He, he knows exactly what's going on here. And he thinks, hey, maybe if I just keep my mouth shut, we'll all go down together. And I won't have to face this. But God won't leave him alone. Look at the story. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let's cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. Casting lots is just basically an ancient way of using chance and and to say that the gods would make the dice or the the lots roll in the right way and give them their answer. 
And so they cast lots. And of course, God even uses this pagan practice. Uh, they, they cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. And they cast lots. And it fell, of course, on Jonah. So they ask him, okay, tell us who's responsible for making all this trouble for us. <laughs> what do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? <laughs> They're giving Jonah the interrogation, this rapid fire questions. What's going on? We're all going to die. The, the, the waves are coming up over and they're like, you're responsible for this. You see, God's not going to let Jonah go. Jonah got on the boat so he could get out of the predicament in which God had placed him. He was trying to escape the rock and the hard place conundrum. Now God has him right in the middle of another predicament. Isn't it interesting Jonah tried to escape the rock in a hard place. God puts him between another rock in a hard place. Watch what happens. Read the text. Verse 9. Jonah answered, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running from the Lord because he'd already told him so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make this sea calm down for us? You see, Jonah had finally revealed himself in his secret. And now he realizes he's in another predicament or conundrum. Here are his rock and hard place choices now. Either he dies or he dies and everybody dies. Those are now Jonah's choices that he sees facing him. He dies and saves everyone, or he dies and everybody dies. And Jonah is thinking, ah, what are options C now? And he realizes there is no option C. He can't do it. And for the first time, Jonah begins to be transformed and to reflect the heart of God. He's willing to sacrifice now for himself sacrifice himself for people who are irreligious and pagan. Jonah grows up. Look at verse 12. Pick me up. Throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Jonah grew up. Jonah stopped looking for option C. Jonah embraced option A or B, rock or hard place. And for the first time, he cared about someone other than himself. And we, of course, see here, you know, here a picture of the gospel. Jonah becomes willing, finally, to sacrifice himself. And, of course, we're reminded that later on, hundreds of years later, God himself would find himself in the garden with this very same predicament. If I obey the will of the Father, Jesus said, it's, I'm going to endure a painful, horrible death. Like, let this cup pass from me. That's what he said. But Jesus didn't choose another option. He looked at the hard place and he stepped right into it and he sacrificed himself for you and for me. Jonah points to this. This concept of sacrifice is all over the media. All, every movie you watch has somebody sacrificing for someone else. This is a common theme and it's the gospel woven throughout our culture. 
This is, you know, I always talk about push pause on the movie and talk about what you see. Whenever you see someone sacrifice themselves for someone else in a movie, in a book, talk about it because it's a picture in some way of Jesus in the gospel. Jonah here has finally learned to sacrifice. And it reminds us that Jesus sacrificed for us. And Jonah begins to have an impact that he never imagined he would have. He's running away from the work of God. He's quit. He's not intending to do anything God wants. Jonah's on vacation. But as God increases the pressure, as God limits the options, people start turning to the one true God. Watch this progression of the impact that Jonah unwillingly has on these soldiers who don't know the true God. On these sailors, excuse me, that don't know the true God. First of all, look at verse 13. Watch this progression. Jonah says, throw me overboard. And instead the men do their best to row back to land. But they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Why didn't these guys just go, hey, if this is your fault, Jonah, gladly, we will throw you overboard. Because God is starting to make an impact through Jonah, even if Jonah is doing it unwillingly. He's starting to change these sailors. Look at verse 14. Then they cried out, not to their gods. They cried out to the Lord. Oh, Lord. This is a specific name, Lord, Yahweh, for the Jewish God. They're calling out to the one true God. Oh, Lord, please don't let us die for this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, oh, Lord, have done as you pleased. Do you see this transgression? Jonah's introduced them, albeit unwillingly, to the one true God. Now look at, we make finally this full circle transformation in the sailor's life. 15, then they took Jonah and they threw him overboard. And the raging sea grew calm. And at this, the sailors, the men, greatly feared the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Look at the transformation. They feared the Lord, they worshiped the Lord, and they committed their lives to the Lord. And all of this happened because Jonah quit. This is awesome. I love God's sovereign hand here. He's going to do his work whether you and I want him to or not. Now, some of you might go, well, Dave, sweet, then I quit. If God can use me as a quitter, I fully embrace quitting. But here's the thing. You and I miss out on something if we quit. Wouldn't it be better if God's going to do his kingdom work, if we cooperated with him, if we joyfully entered into the joyful ability to willingly submit ourselves to God and say, use me however you want for your kingdom. What a joyful place. God has done a great thing, but Jonah finds himself sinking into the depths of the sea. He's falling down through the water, waiting to die. How do you respond when God has you between a rock and a hard place? Jonah is sinking into the water, waiting to die. Don't run. Stand firm amidst the pressure. Choose the rock or the hard place. Choose the options that God has put before you. Of course, you say, 
the application is easy. Don't run away from God. Yeah. And that's kind of a known brainer. But as we apply this to our lives, I want to answer the question, why did Jonah run? Because as we answer this question, why did he choose option C? We can answer the question, why do you and I try to look for option C? Uh, The first reason that Jonah ran from God is because he disagreed with the options that he had given him. He didn't like what was presented. He wanted to tell God how he could serve God best. You have been in a place in your life where you didn't like the options. Lean into the hard things. When we spend our time thinking about the third way, we miss so much formation in our lives. The second thing that I want you to think about is, uh, is that Jonah ran because he disagreed with God's assessment of value. Jonah ran from his call in protest against God's move towards the violently wicked. Jonah did not like the fact that God moved to have compassion on the violently wicked. Who is the person in your life that you value the least? Just pause for a moment and think. Who is that person? Let God bring that person to mind. Who's the person you value the least that's caused you most pain, that makes, has made you suffer? Maybe it's a neighbor. Probably it's a relative. Who's that person? Is it a coworker? Is it your mother-in-law? Maybe it's someone who's hurt you. Maybe it's a rough time with people of a certain race. Maybe it's someone who's pursuing a value that is opposed to everything you value. The message that God has to us from Jonah is that God loves and values even the most wicked person. The person that's hurt you most, God loves and values that person. You may disagree with God's assessment, but his assessment is right and true. The third reason Jonah ran is because he had disagreed with God's willingness to risk compassion on the violently wicked. Okay. The Assyrians surely deserved God's judgment and wrath. They were threatening the known world with this kind of judgment and wrath. If God would make the mistake of having compassion on them rather than destroying them, Jonah sees that God is putting the entire world at risk from these horrible people. And he disagreed with God's willingness to have compassion. To Jonah, God's taking this unbelievable risk in sparing the Ninevites. A risk that's bad for the victims of the world and for God's reputation. And Jonah wants nothing to do with it. The gospel calls people, friends, you and me, who believe in Jesus. The gospel calls us to do things that are uncomfortable. The gospel calls us to put an end to the boring gospel. And Jesus calls us to take major risks for the kingdom of God. In preaching to the Ninevites, Jonah was taking a major risk that they would repent. This is timeless, friends. God is still calling you and me to participate in this kind of risky behavior, in the preaching of the gospel, in the living of this message, the double-edged theme of God's active mercy towards his enemy and the call for God's people to trust God enough to proclaim this sometimes offensive message, this sometimes offensive mercy has its beginnings in Jonah. And this comes to full blossom in the ministry of Jesus. You see, Jesus crossed social boundaries. He reaches out to outcasts. He reaches out to a zealot, to Roman centurions, even to a thief on the cross. 
And Jesus calls his disciples to do the same. God wants you to do something that you probably think is stupid. And he wants you to care enough about those that you hate because he cares. And this is a huge risk. The gospel is simply and stupidly frustrating at times. It's a huge risk because the people who may not want to hear you and they may hate you for it. How do you respond when God has you between a rock and a hard place? Do you run? Do you ignore him? Do you choose option C or do you choose rock or hard place? The Lord, verse 17, the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. We'll jump into this next week. God's grace on full display. Again, the Lord provided a fish. You know what Jonah means in Hebrew? It means dove, Kevin. Extra points for you, Kevin. It means dove. Dove! I, I went once at a funeral where uh, at the graveside service, they released these doves as a message of peace and the doves flew out from the cage. And I really thought the whole thing was going to blow up as the doves circled around and tried to land back in the cage. <laughs> like that ruined it. But eventually they circled and they flew off. And there's supposed to be this picture of peace and a send away. The dove is a symbol of peace. Jonah means peace. God has intended to extend his mercy to those Jonah doesn't like to make him a message of peace. Because the truth is these Ninevites couldn't save themselves, could they? They couldn't do it. We're going to sing a song in close as we, as we finish. Who, O oh Lord, could save themselves? Who their own soul could heal? Our shame was deeper than the sea. Your grace is deeper still. As our worship team comes up to close, I'm going to pray. Our ushers will come and pass the offering. Please drop your community card in there. But I want you to reflect as we sing about the God who saves. Because people in this world, even those we don't love, even those we hate, they too need the grace of Jesus. Heavenly Father, we come to you today joyfully, joyfully telling joyfully reflecting in the gospel, joyfully remembering that we can't save ourselves. When we find ourselves between option A and option B of our own, we can't find another way. God, would you give us the courage to love others and embrace the options that you've put in front of us? Would you help us not to run, but to submit? joyfully. In Jesus' name, amen.